This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Every day. Every day. Where are the slippers and are you guys going to get them back? I mean, it's, it's every day. And I think a lot of people do come here because they want to see the museum where the slippers were stolen. Is that a good or a bad thing? I don't know. We're a small museum in a small town. I guess I'll, I'll take it. If we do get the slippers back, yeah, I think security would definitely need to be um, top priority. But I just think it makes sense for the slippers to be here. Judy Garland was Dorothy. She was born in Grand Rapids. We have her childhood home here. We have a museum dedicated to her life and her legacy. And so it seems to me that the slippers would be the ruby red cherry on top of the sundae. I'm Seward Darby. And I'm Ariel Ramshandani. Welcome to No Place Like Home. Episode 8, They Don't Like Being Owned. Once upon a time, in the podcast's first episode, we talked about how the story of the stolen ruby slippers isn't just about a crime. It's also about obsession. We were talking about people we interviewed. Detectives. Memorabilia collectors. Wizard of Oz fanatics. But we were also talking about ourselves. As journalists, obsession is kind of in our DNA. We want answers to our questions so badly that we call complete strangers to find them. We turn the things we learn while reporting over and over in our minds. We're trying to find the truth. But maybe even more than that, we're looking for meaning. We learned a lot while reporting this story, and we want to take a minute to recap the most important pieces of information. On August 28, 2005, a pair of the ruby slippers was stolen from the Judy Garland Museum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, which was Judy's hometown. For 13 years, people who cared about the slippers looked for them everywhere they could think of. Finally, in 2017, Grand Rapids detective Brian Matson got a solid tip from a mystery man in Florida about where the slippers were. The following summer, the FBI got the shoes back in a sting operation. According to our sources, the person who returned them was Joe Friedberg, a star criminal defense attorney in Minneapolis. He thought he was exchanging them for money, but that was all part of the FBI's ruse. Friedberg gave law enforcement the name of the person he said was the original thief. That person was Kent Anderson, brother of comedian Louis Anderson. Kent is believed to have been involved in another infamous art crime known as the Rockwell heist. He died in 2007. As of this recording, the ruby slippers are still in FBI evidence. No one has been charged with a crime related to the theft. There's other information we can't stop thinking about, and it's all the loose ends. 
They've shaped the story and the way we've told it as much as anything else. We're not the only ones who feel that way. Here's Bob Stein. If you can't charge people for the theft and the statute of limitations are over, um, I just want to know the who, the what, the why, the where, where those slippers went. I mean, that's got to be a huge story on its own. You can make movies about it. Who touched them? That's the big story. I'm hoping the FBI is going to have the time um, to solve it the rest of the way. In The Wizard of Oz, the first thing Glinda asks Dorothy is what kind of witch she is. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? We had a similar question about some of the people in this story. Were they good guys or bad guys? Like Florida Man and Joe Friedberg. Were they involved in the case for the right reasons or the wrong ones? The things we don't know pushed us, just like they pushed Dorothy in the movie. I'm not a witch at all. I'm Dorothy Gale from Kansas. She doesn't understand everything about her journey, but she keeps going, and she's changed by it. What have you learned, Dorothy? If I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. Is that right? That's all it is. As for us, we see now that sometimes the unknown is where magic lives. Now those magic slippers will take you home in two seconds. Oh, total two? No, two, two. The most similar cases I can think of are when sacred artworks are stolen from communities and sold often in another country to collectors who appreciate them as a aesthetic object and artwork but don't see them as a living god. The ruby slippers are not worth a whole lot without their story. The fact that they're in this film that everybody knows and sees means they have this sort of magic that comes along with them. This is Aaron Thompson, the art crime professor who we talked to last episode. To the people who love them, the ruby slippers are like sacred relics. They're repositories for all kinds of feelings and beliefs, the universal and the personal. Most usually art crimes are prosecuted as if the art was just any sort of normal property. The ruby slippers are worth a whole lot more than just any other pair of shiny shoes, but it's it's hard to protect that sort of value. The law is not really good at protecting magic. You know, look at the Bellini that was taken from Madonna d'Orto in Venice. It was one of the centerpieces of the church. People would go to the church there and pray in front of the Bellini. And you know, it's been missing for years. And the community feels that. This is Chris Marinello, the art recovery consultant from last episode. The small family of people that that call this church their home parish feel that sense of loss. And the same thing happens whether it's a museum in a small village. You know, the, the entire community feels that loss. It's a crime against everyone. 
We've spent so many months, so many years, thinking and talking about the Slippers case. At a certain point, we had to wonder why law enforcement kept going. It's one thing for two journalists to be obsessed with connecting all the dots. But the Slippers have been found. They were safe. Wasn't that enough for law enforcement? Then again, if they stop pursuing answers and possible criminal charges, a theft like this might happen again. And usually, the outcomes aren't so rosy. Cultural icons are destroyed all the time. At the very least, the Slippers investigation might send a message. Even if protecting magic is hard, we have to try. You might be wondering, if the ruby slippers were released from evidence tomorrow, who would get them? In an earlier episode, we talked about how Michael Shaw, the longtime owner of the slippers, received an insurance payout of $800,000 after they were stolen. So technically, that means an insurance company owns the most famous shoes of all time. But insurance companies aren't in the business of collecting artwork. Often, when objects like the ruby slippers are recovered, the original owners get the chance to buy them back. In the agreement, it said that the insurance company could not ask for more than what the payment was. Because, uh, yeah, they would love for me to forfeit because they know they're very, very valuable and worth much more than a million. I mean, let's face it, they're not only famous, they're infamous. This is Michael Shaw. He wants the slippers back, but at the moment, he doesn't have the money. And what I'm doing now is I'm trying to raise the money, and uh, it's looking good, you know, and uh, then we'll see what will happen. I could never take them out on tour again. Uh, First of all, I don't think I could find an insurance company that would insure them. And secondly, it would call for too much security, and uh, no. Now, they'll when I and I'm saying when, not if. When I get them back, they're going into a, a, a safety deposit box, and then I'll decide what to do. So a few of the pairs of slippers I feel like have ended up in kind of under lock and key um, for for various reasons. Well, I think you know the reason. <laughs> they're too vul- they're too vulnerable. <laughs> Would you have done everything the same? Would you still have really wanted to share what you had with the world? Well, honey, I, I, was, I did that for almost 10 years because uh, I knew how much people enjoyed seeing them. But the thing is, it was basically always a one-man show. And at that time, I had to schlep trunks and wardrobe containers and all the rest of it. And it was becoming more and more difficult. I was becoming a little more decrepit each time. And it was wear and tear on the costumes and the props. And so I began scaling everything back until finally the only things that I would take on display would be the Wizard of Oz shoes, the dress, and the witch's hat, but uh, which I enjoyed, of, of course, up until the very end. But I did it because I loved it. Other people have their eyes on the slippers, too. And I personally am on a mission to sell a pair of ruby slippers. That's my goal. So I'm hoping that the FBI will be looking for an auction house that will actually want to sell the slippers. 
That's Martin Nolan, the chief financial officer of Julian's Auctions. It's an auction house devoted solely to memorabilia and pop culture. Nolan has sold artifacts like the white dress Marilyn Monroe wore to sing Happy Birthday, Mr. President, and Michael Jackson's lone glove. He's been waiting his whole career to sell a pair of the ruby slippers, and now he's imagining a whole auction dedicated to them. They would be in a catalog of their own. They would be a catalog produced for the slippers. Every detail recorded from start to finish, the journey, it would be the, the, the Bible for the slippers. Nolan thinks that because of what happened in Grand Rapids, the ruby slippers currently with the FBI are the most valuable pair. They might even be the most valuable pieces of memorabilia in the world. The slippers could create a whole new world record, which we love to do here at Julian's Auctions. And uh, certainly, uh, as I said, I'm bound and determined to sell a pair of slippers. And Ariel, I'll come back to you. You'll get the exclusive when when we get that announcement. So much history, so much involved since they were first worn by Judy Garland in 1939 in the movie. And then the fact that they were stolen and then insurance payout and they were missing for 12, 13 years. And the fact that they make up two pairs of shoes because one pair at the Smithsonian is mismatched, but the four shoes together make up two pairs. I am confident that the six million and 10,000 record currently held by Kurt Cobain's guitar will be smashed. And I'd probably estimate five million to 10 million, but I think we could get to 10 million. There would be a sufficient interest in those shoes. The Ruby slippers, they don't like being owned, right? They never seem to do well. This is Joe Maddalena, a Hollywood memorabilia expert who you heard from in episode five. He thinks the slippers should be available to the public. I think that, you know, like after all of this, they should be put up at auction and they should be sold and hopefully end up in another museum. They don't want to be owned by anybody. It's really apparent. And, you know, um, Reese, he believes they're cursed. And anybody who comes into their possession is cursed. But he won't touch the ruby slippers. He'll only use a pointer to poke at them. I have no interest. I'm actually a little creeped out by the shoes. Um, I have no interest in touching them, especially the witch's pair. That's Reese Thomas, who you've also heard before. He wrote The Ruby Slippers of Oz, and he's the person who gave the various pairs of slippers their names. The witch's pair is the one that will soon be displayed at the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in Los Angeles. Uh, The witch's pair just, to me, have, they have bad mojo. You know, they were Kent Warner's pair. He died of this horrible scourge, AIDS. Um, Julie Collier had handled that pair. She was killed on the streets of New York. Riding her bike to work, she was hit by a garbage truck. It was horrible. When we were doing the, the A&E show, we went to St. Louis, where the witch's shoes were. The fellow who bought them. Uh, opened up the display case for us, and my cameraman, I, I refused to touch them, but my cameraman handled them. Several months later, uh, he died of an overdose of heroin. 
that that particular pair really creeped me out. I have no interest in owning a pair and no interest in in uh, even touching them. Give me back my slippers. I am the only one that knows how to use them. They're no use to you. Yeah, I, I think that the slippers have powers that are you know telling us they want to be um, out with the public. So I, I hope that this pair also finds a home somewhere out there in the world. There's nothing like seeing the ruby slippers. Everybody wants to see them. I don't care how rich you are, how poor you are, what your nationality, they're cool. Don Wallace and Ryan Lentleman agree with Madalena. They've seen how people react to the pair of slippers permanently on display at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, where they both work. These shoes, they bring out the smiles and everyone gets so excited. So the idea that like they want to be out, they want to be seen would not surprise me at all. Because when they enter a room, they are just like, they demand the attention. When the light hits them, they still just completely sparkle and shine. And I, I think they're meant to be in the light, below light, to <laughs> preserve them. But I think they need to be in the light at all times. Reese Thomas said this great thing that they, they always out their owners. And I think that's really interesting that, you know, they can never be kept in the shadows for too long. You know, they're, they're imbued with magical power. So who am I to say what, what they have on their mind? When I gain those ruby slippers, my power will be the greatest in Oz. I think in a lot of ways, the ruby slippers are like the holy grail of movie props. They are this talisman of the entire studio system. And you can kind of understand it because they were created to be gem-like and magical. The way that they were created and all the work that was put into them was to make them seem like the ultimate object of desire. And so it worked. And over the years, they've come not to only represent this film, but the entire Hollywood movie system, you know, the, the American way of making films, which was all about glamour and, and desire and chasing your dreams. We do, you know, see them as national treasures. They have that designation within the museum. And there's something that we treat with all the ways you can interpret that term. The few times that they have traveled in the time that I have been associated with the museum, I know that they have always traveled with armed guard. They went to London as part of a Hollywood costume exhibition a few years ago, and they got their own first class seat with the armed guard beside them. You know, their value is immeasurable. A wealthy owner, a major museum, Michael Shaw's safety deposit box. These are all places the ruby slippers could end up one day. But there's another option. What if they went to the place a lot of people have come to think of as their home? What if they were returned to Minnesota? And what if this time, they stayed forever? This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe 
every day at sax.com. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. When the slippers were actually found at that time in our in our legislature, we were actually working on a bill called the Legacy Funds. And I think we're probably one of the only states in the country that has something like that. This is Justin Eichhorn, a Minnesota state senator from Grand Rapids. He's telling us about money the state government allocates to preserve pieces of Minnesota's historical legacy. If he can swing it, Eichhorn wants to use some of that money to buy the ruby slippers. You know, the slippers were found and I thought, you know what? These are such a huge and important part of Minnesota culture now that what a perfect spot for these constitutionally dedicated funds. Wouldn't it be great if they could be displayed for all Minnesotans to enjoy and also pass some money to to help tell the story behind it? Because there's so many people that are so curious about what happened, how it happened, why it happened, how they were found. Crime in any area is bad, paints a bad light of wherever the crime happens. But I think it made people curious about the Judy Garland Museum and the Children's Museum that's connected to it, not only locally, but as people came through the community. Icorn isn't the only person interested in keeping the shoes local and telling their story. Lila Crow, the head of the Historical Society for Itasca County, where Grand Rapids is located, is considering creating an exhibition about the 2005 theft. And it would certainly be poetic for the slippers to go back to the place where they were stolen, for the Judy Garland Museum to have them in its permanent collection. For the Grand Rapids community to have those back in the state, owned by the state, available for the public to see and enjoy, I can't can't understate how important that would be, both emotionally and for the the culture of our state. We, we got... We got that piece of our culture back. But there are other things to consider, like security issues, especially because the theft made the shoes so much more valuable. It's going to need a a better security system, that's for sure. I'm certain they would be a target again. People would be wondering and watching. You'd probably have people that are driving by the, the museum constantly to make sure there wasn't anything out of place. Um, people would be be nervous but happy. Since we started reporting this story, the Judy Garland Museum has hired a new executive director, Janie Heights. You heard her at the beginning of the episode. I feel honored to be able to take this museum into the next generation, to 
maybe get new Judy fans that learn her story and connect with her. In fact, just last week, we had a 13-year-old boy whose grandparents drove him all the way from Ohio uh, just to come see this museum. And that was their only purpose for driving was all the way from Ohio to come to see Judy Garland's museum. So the fans are out there and they're coming. Heights wants to update the museum. And part of her vision is reframing Judy Garland's story and how people see her. Heights wants to show Judy's troubles, including her addictions, in a more empathetic light. Everybody has struggles in their life. How could I judge somebody if I've never walked a day in their shoes? So, yeah, I think there there isn't another angle of the story, and I'm trying to figure out what that is and how I can maybe change that perspective or that persona, especially maybe locally. Like Icorn, Heights also wants to bring the Ruby Slippers back to Minnesota, and she's confident the Judy Garland Museum is the right home for them. Should Michael Shaw have the first shot? Absolutely. They were his. But I also think the best place for them would be this museum. I mean, they were stolen here. Our police officers in this town are the ones that helped find them, crack the case after many, many years. You know, this is where Judy Garland was born. Judy Garland wore the slippers. She she was Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. So they should be here. There's a pair on the East Coast. There's two pairs on the West Coast. Let's get some in the middle of the country. So um, why not Grand Rapids? Bad things happen. And, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Should they have had better security? Yeah, well... It happened. All we can do is do better the next time or, you know, do better going forward. I don't I don't know what I would do if something happened on my watch. You know what I mean? So, yes, yeah, security would be the utmost of importance if they come back here. And um, I would take uh, that very seriously. In hindsight, I... I- Today, I I would say, as a small museum, 15 years ago, with no security staff, we probably shouldn't, most likely should not have been housing anything that valuable. That's John Kelsch, who was the museum's director when the theft happened. Do you think you would do it again? Like, I mean, maybe different. No, I wouldn't. security. Yeah. There'd have to be like an armed guard, almost. Every single visitor at the front desks, they want to know about the slippers. They all know about it. All the TripAdvisor comments, you know, about our museum. Gee, I hope they find the slippers, they say. But people love the museum. We're just really happy with all the comments. I guess it proves that there's no such thing as bad publicity. Kelsch says he sometimes imagines what it would be like for Judy to visit the museum today, to see how she's celebrated. When he thinks about her life after Grand Rapids, sometimes Kelsch actually thinks about Judy's entire family, how trouble followed them, how she and her sisters all died young. He hopes Judy would be glad that the town she once said made her terribly happy is bringing other children joy now. 
I could just, I guess, see the smile on her face if she was there when a school field trip, when those kids are stepping off the bus for a day of fun. I just think she'd really love that. I think the reason I can remember so many things so early in my life was it was the only tranquil, happy time my family and I ever had because it was so delightful. It was really delightful, you know. When we visited Grand Rapids in the spring of 2021, we went to John Kelsch's house on Lake Pokegama, where Judy went swimming as a child. Hi, nice to see you. Come on in. Yeah. Hi. Hi. John Minor, the museum's founder, was there with his wife, Pamela, and Ray Nickel, a member of the museum's board. Over the years, they've all become his closest family. They stood in the kitchen, ribbing one another good-naturedly. Minor was particularly excited about the museum's future and how the ruby slippers might shape it. We've talked about it, and we've, we've got several plans, but we'd, ha- we'd have them there a certain length of time and some other places a certain length of time so that more people can see them. Because we are in northern Minnesota. If Miner has his way, he also wants to revamp another Grand Rapids landmark. The water tower is going to have no place like home and more than that, probably the ruby slippers and a couple other things. If that happens, it would be a far cry from just a few decades ago, when local opposition kept the museum from featuring Judy on a billboard. And that would be a feel-good ending. The kind Hollywood loves. Even people that are are young know about the ruby slippers, so that's kind of kept us alive. While working on the podcast, it was inevitable that we'd rewatch The Wizard of Oz. I did on a hot summer night when I was visiting my in-laws. I sang along to the music. The song The Cowardly Lion performs in the Emerald City is my favorite. I marveled at how convincing the tornado still is when you see it in the distance, churning toward Dorothy's house. The next night, I found myself in the basement, waiting out a tornado warning. The line between art and real life was, for a brief moment, very thin. I watched the movie, too, a few times. The part I love most is when Dorothy stands alone on the yellow brick road at the beginning of her journey. How do I start for Emerald City? It's always best to start at the beginning, and all you do is follow the yellow brick road. She takes a couple of steps, and as the camera pulls out, follow the yellow brick road. You see the road swirling, getting bigger, Dorothy is headed home, but her world is widening with every step. Follow the yellow brick road? The movie seems different every time you watch it. Its layers of meaning are infinite. Its mysteries, too. But what's really changing is us, the viewers. Are you ready now? Our perspectives, our knowledge, our questions. Yes, I'm ready now. Those are what's shifting. Then close your eyes. Tap your heels together three times. The ruby slippers are back, as shiny as ever. But they're not the same shoes they were before they were stolen. At least, that's not how anyone sees them. They're familiar, but somehow changed. 
and the next chapter of their existence will change them again. The shoes are an enduring symbol of the power of belief. If you believe they have magic, well, then they have magic. If you believe that they will carry you home, back to wherever, if you believe in those iconic words, there's no place like home, that's the sort of power that the shoes carry. This is a story that doesn't fade to black. There's no ending here. So long as the shoes are out there and so long as people have an interest in them, the story's just going to keep on going. No Place Like Home is a presentation, direction, and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio, in partnership with The Atavist Magazine. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran. Written by Ariel Ramshandani. Narrated by Ariel Ramshandani and me, Sayward Darby. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Produced by Paige Heimson and Valerie Thomas. Engineering, research, and production support by Adam Prashibu, Bill Schultz, Ian Mont, Bob Tabador, Patrick Antonetti, and Sean Cherry. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Hilary Schuff, Melissa Wester, and Meredith Tiger. Series artwork by Kurt Courtenay. Season one of No Place Like Home is based on reporting by Ariel Ramshandani for The Atavist Magazine. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From m and rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.